welcome to Sweet Silver Song, the podcast telling stories about our favourite football club, Liverpool. My name is Mark Kerr, uh, I am a Liverpool supporter for over 60 years, I now work as a tour guide at Anfield. These podcasts are a not official podcasts by the club, they're made totally independently with love by supporters. Now the podcasts do cost us money to produce and publish and we do need financial support. This episode is sponsored by Brantones, a Liverpool-based developer who designs and builds homes for housing trusts. And Brantones are looking for plots of land suitable for residential development around the northwest of England, between about half an acre and two acres, with planning permission, if possible. And an acre is about the size of a football field. Today, I'm delighted to welcome back my special guest, former Liverpool player, George Scott, who was one of Bill Shankly's very first signings. Now, we spoke to him on a recent podcast and he's now backed by popular demand. If you haven't heard of him, don't worry, George never made the first team, but he has written a tremendous book about his experiences at Anfield, The Lost Shankly Boy. I posted the link to his book on our website and on the podcast notes. George, there are many... uh, Characters in your book who were at Anfield while you were there, I'm talking about the backroom staff, etc. One of whom was um, Ephraim Longworth. Now, he was quite an amazing character, wasn't he? Because he had been a player and, in fact, he'd been Liverpool's captain when they won back-to-back league titles in the 1920s. And he'd also been the first Liverpool player to captain England. Yeah, we call him Eve, E-P-H, Ephraim, unusual name, Ephraim yeah. Longworth. And this, this old guy, this old guy was in there like when we were kids, apprentices, and when I started playing the Central League, you know, in the early, early to mid-60s. And, you know, he used to come in, and he used to do a little bit of um, you know, odd jobs around the club, and that Shankly always revered him. I thought, why is he so nice nice to this old fella, you know? Anyway, Shankly told me, like, you know, he said to me, he said, uh, he's a living legend, son. Yeah. That man's a living legend. Yeah. And that's the first time I knew anything about Eve. So we got talking to him, like, and he told some wonderful stories. And we used to play snooker or pool with him. And he had uh, the beginnings of Parkinson's disease at the time. He was a left-handed snooker player. And we'd go in a snooker room about afternoon after our chores were done. And he'd, he'd have a game with us, you know, a round table game of pool. And, and he'd always win. And the problem was we used to sort of try and take advantage of him because when he had the cue in his hand, his hand used to shake his left hand, but then when he got his eye in, it suddenly stopped and he put the ball, you know. And we used to have some good banter with him, you know, and, uh, you know, you're right, he was uh, such a historic figure. In fact, in the 100 players that shook the cup, I think he's in the middle of them, about 46 or something. Yeah. Um, and he played uh, in the 19... I think he played the 1914 Cup Final at Crystal Palace yes. as well, when they lost to Burnley. And he, he certainly was captain of the Untouchables. Yeah. Who um, won the nineteen twenty twenty one finals, you know, and to, to and he was in his seventies then, and I was seventeen, so he's a long way ahead of me age wise, and uh, you know, but he was lovely. He was an amazing character. His stories he told us. Um, now he told us one story about captain in England when they beat Scotland four three, mm. and I said to him, I said, "What position were you if?" He said, "Oh, I was middle of the back." He said, "Holding it, holding the line," you know. I said, but he didn't hold it very well, did he? He lost three goals. <laughs> well, I wouldn't even repeat what he said to me. <laughs> yeah, I won't repeat it, no. But, I mean, he was an amazing character, a lovely man, 
um, you know, historical figure in Liverpool's story. Yeah. Apparently, when you see videos of the history of Liverpool, they often show this old man, Mark, the lines on Anfield, and he's got, like, bicycle clips around his trousers and wearing a flat cap on, and apparently that's Eve. Yeah, uh, marking yeah. the pitch out. Yeah, um, yeah, incredible. Yeah, could, be, could be. Well, I mean, obviously the guy. I've got a picture, a uh, black and white picture of Bobby Graham Gordon Wallace himself forking the pitch, forking the Anfield yeah. pitch, yeah. and Arthur Riley standing behind us, the groundsman, yeah. very famous groundsman. His family were all there for years, and Arthur was telling us to stop larking about, yeah. you know. And there's this lovely photograph and forking the pitch. This is right in front of the old Anfield Road um, end of the pitch, you know. Uh, he was another legend, Arthur Riley. You know, there were, Jimmy McInnes sadly committed suicide, and he was an amazing, hard-working man. But it just got on top of him. Yeah, so he was the club secretary, wasn't he, before Peter Robinson? He was, and the club exploded because mm. when Shankly came, yeah. from the job being a fairly routine job, I would imagine it became a real, and they didn't have enough people helping mm. him until after. Sadly, he, 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 it was such a shame. I mean, he was, he was. Um, you know, I said in I said in the book, I said you know, building Liverpool, you know, wasn't easy. You know, yeah. there were a lot of people sort of, you know, especially Jimmy, was so sad because you know, he was a good footballer on his day, a great secretary, and uh, just got on top of him. He used to be sleeping in the ground in a camp bed because the European Cup tickets and you know, League Championship, FA Cup, it, yeah. it was just too much. And they realised maybe a bit too late at the club. He needed more support. Yeah, because he, he came to Liverpool with George Kay, didn't they? When George Kay was manager, yeah. appointed manager in the 1930s. And then, of course, um, George Kay died. and But Jimmy McKinney yeah. stayed on uh, and became club secretary, as you say. And then from being a fairly sleepy club in the second division, yeah. well, not much happened, really. When well, then uh, they brought in Bill Barlow and then eventually Robinson came in. He was brilliant. Yeah. You know, chief secretaries, then they got their act together. I suppose, I mean, you think about it, during the 50s, we're in the second division, it was pay on the gate, there was there was no need for worrying about ticket sales yeah. or dealing with loads of inquiries from the media or whatever about access to the stadium and all that kind of stuff. All the things that would occupy a club secretary now. And then all that changed, we got promoted, as you say, we won the league title, but then we got to our second FA Cup final. And yeah. I know the demand for tickets was massive. My dad went to every round of the cup that season, except for the final. Yeah, when we played Bolton Wanderers away in the maybe the fifth round or something. Yes, that was that. Uh, at Burnham Park. Yeah, well, that was an all-ticket match, and my dad took the day off work and queued up for tickets, and he could only buy two at a time, so he queued up got his two tickets, then went to the back of the queue, bought two more and so on. And then he sold them to his mates at work and whatever. And they all paid him a little bit for cover his lost wages. Yeah, but I remember when they played Preston and Peter scored the winning goal, Peter Thompson, and him with the crowds going along that, the road to Preston, there was yeah. thousands going there, you know, I don't know. As you say, tickets were really at a premium. And funny enough, at the cup final, I got rid of four tickets before the game. It's incredible. Oh yes, it's, it's in incredible. The book. I, was, yeah. I, was, I was in the, in the dressing room with the boys and Ruben, I think it was, came up to me. He said, uh, I've got four tickets here, Georgie. He said, uh, the boys from Aberdeen can't make it. Can you get rid of them outside? But bear in mind, this was a few hours before a kickoff. Yeah. You know, maybe three hours before a kickoff or whatever, you know. So I go outside and I've got these four tickets. And just by luck, I've seen lads I knew. They didn't have tickets. And they saw me, what you I've got my Liverpool blazer on here, the, the red live about that I've seen. And I, what are you doing out here? I said, look, I've got four tickets here. 
how much, how much? No, no. I said, just face value. Whatever the Ruben said, just sell them for 10 shillings, whatever it was, you know. Yeah. So they started to get the money out. I said, look, forget it, forget it. I'll see you later, just take the tickets. Because the crowd was starting to come around, like thinking, anyway, I got rid of them. The, that guy sent me a Christmas card every year. Anyway, I get back and I can't get in because the Queen's coming. <laughs> and, and the bloody barriers are up and his Bobby's on the gate, you know, and I'm saying, I'm a player. Yeah, where'd you hire your, where'd you hire your blazer, you know? And I had to get Shankly out. So Shankly comes to the door, you know, and he's he's not not happy, you know. What are you doing out here, son? You know, it's a player, get I said, Ruben sent me out to sell it. get inside. <laughs> Unbelievable. In the cup final, you know, it's just incredible. You know, you can't even think about how it ever happened, you know. But it did, you know. I think back in those days, both clubs got very small allocation, maybe fifteen thousand each or something. I remember uh, seeing photographs of one of the cup finals lived by jumping up at the window. Yeah. Trying to get in were, 50 feet above the ground. Yeah. Uh, I think that was the the first Merseyside Cup final, 86. Yeah. Believable. Yeah. I was there, that one. Uh, I, I saw all kinds going on, people trying to get into the stadium. But uh, also, I remember 65. I wasn't there, but there were some stories of Spivs selling tickets outside Wembley. And the Liverpool fans saw all Terrible. gathering around them. And the next minute, the, the Spivs was on the floor <laughs> and his tickets were gone. <laughs> <laughs> There's been some amazing. Did you go to Istanbul? Ah, uh, uh, I didn't. I had a ticket. In fact, I've still got it. But the flights were so expensive, like £650 each. And I wasn't going to pay that. I could I could pay for a holiday for the family for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and I thought, if I watch it in the pub, can I drink £650 worth of beer? Nah. <laughs> on a pre, on another podcast, we talk about Istanbul and what happened to me that night, but I didn't go, no. You went, I did, you? I went with yeah. my son, yeah, yeah. and uh, it was incredible. Because they were playing like princes. I mean, Milan just oh. completely outplayed us. And we were thinking 6-0 against yeah. something like that, you know. So half-time, we see people leaving. They couldn't get out of the stadium, but they were leaving the, into the concourse. They were that like, gutted, you know. Yeah. Anyway, the game started, second half. You never walk alone. It was yeah. unbelievable. And came out when Stevie scored the goal and his arm was flailing, you know, come on. And I remember the television commentator later saying, hello, hello, you know, yeah. we're back in. Anyway, um, my son gets a bit interested then, Gavin, you know, and then right away we scored a second. Well, it was, ooh. And then when the third one in, oh, penalty, saved it, and then scored again. I fell down three flights, of, you know, three. My son got onto me, we rolled, <laughs> rolled down three. Steps. Unbelievable. Anyway, you know, it was a great experience, you know, really, really. The place, it was on the edge of the moon. The yeah. stadium was, but one of my memories is seeing like red ants coming down the hill. Yeah. We got there very late and he's watching these Liverpool fans just appearing over the hill coming yeah. down, you know. Never seen any Milan fans because obviously they were at the other side, yeah. you know. But, you know, it was an amazing experience and what a game that was. Takes some beating. We've covered that on another podcast and we say probably the most iconic or historic night in the club's history. So, talk about Liverpool's history. You tell a very good story in your book about um, how you came to hear our club's anthem, um, possibly before anybody else in the city. So you were at a party yeah. in Jimmy Tarbuck's house. Do you tell yeah, me? Yeah, yeah. Well, Jimmy Tarbuck used to come down to Melwood quite a bit, you know. Uh, quite a few of them did. Silla Black even came a few times. Ken Dodd was there quite a bit, you know. Frankie Vaughan used to come around. Anyway, I remember um, we were invited to this party at... And uh, during the evening, Jerry Marsden was there. And, you know, out of the blue, he picked up this album, Long Play Record. And they had these things in those days called the dance set. It was like a, a, 
a record player where you put you could put records on and they drop down onto the turntable. Yeah. And then the needle went on and anyway Jerry Jerry put this album on and uh, he took the needle and put it on the last track. Yeah. And just before he dropped it he said to Peter this is my new release, he said, you know, it's going to be a big hit. Tell me what you think, Pete. Peter, Peter, Peter Thompson. Thompson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Peter and I were in Dick's together, friends. And he was sat there and uh, he puts this record on. Right away, when you were... So we're sitting there quietly, just listening to it right through the whole three minutes, whatever it is, you know. And then Jerry took it off, he said to Peter, what do you think, Pete? Peter, oh, it's a bit too slow, Jerry. I don't think it's going to be as good as your other two hits. <laughs> and can you imagine, you know, what that became? And that was the first time we ever heard it, you know, You Never Walk Alone. We didn't know it was from Carousel. We right. didn't know much about musical theatre. Right. We just, it was a slow song. Yeah. Whereas Jerry's previous songs were, was, were they were quite upbeat. And I think yeah, that's what Peter was thinking. And do you recall how the cop came to adopt this as its anthem? Because you were there at the time, weren't you? Well, I presume you were going to all the home matches at, at that point. Oh, yeah, well, when the, when the first team were playing at Anfield, we were playing it. Old Trafford or Newcastle, oh, right? Because don't forget, Central League in those days was the same as the, same as the First Division. It was you had um, a lot of players who had made the great big stars on the way down, yeah. and young players like us on the way up. Yeah. So you played against a lot of great. Played against Howard Kendall. Played against Alan Ball. Played right. against you know uh, players like Albert Quixel and you know yeah. England players. All those guys who were in in the Central League over those three or four years. I played in the Central League, but I hardly missed a game. So we were away when they were at home. So oh, when yes. we came back from Old Trafford, Peter and I would meet up yeah. and we'd go into town to the Royal Tiger because Shankly allowed us to go for a drink on a Saturday night, yeah. providing there wasn't a game on Monday. Yeah. If the next game was Wednesday or beyond, we could yeah. go out Saturday night, but the rest of the week, was yeah. he'd had his spies out, you know. When we started thinking you never walk alone, I can't, I can't remember the actual time, but when I first was at Anfield, they used to sing the Beatles songs. Yeah. She Loves You and things yeah. like that, you know. And then obviously... George Sefton might know. He's probably the guy that would know exactly because he probably played it. Well, George, of course, famously became the stadium announcer on the same day that Kevin Keegan made his debut in August. So he's later on, yeah. 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 He's a lot later on, George. I mean, my understanding is that they played music uh, over the what they call the tannoy system before the match. And I remember they always played Alexander's Ragtime Band on a Honky Tonk Piano. They played Let's Go by the Rooters, which became the St. John Clap. You know, dun, That's dun, right, dun, St. John, yeah. Dun, mm-hmm. Let's go, St. John. And then the last half an hour before the kickoff, they played the top 10. And of course, as the team was coming out, they were playing the number one record. And I believe that in October 1963, <laughs> You Never Walk Alone was number one for three weeks. So the cop will have heard it at least twice, maybe three times yeah. as the teams were coming out. When it dropped out the charts, they stopped playing it before the match. And the cops started singing, we want our song, we want That's our song. That's probably right, yeah, probably right. Yeah. Where's our song? I probably heard it on the tenor, being in the top ten or number one, and just yeah. took it upon themselves. Then the scars went up and yeah. it's gone from there, you know. But now Dortmund use it and Celtic oh, use yeah. it. You know, it amazes me how many clubs seem to have adopted our songs. Yeah. I was listening to Match of the Day some of that, and they were singing the, the tunes, obviously put their own Arsenal lyrics on or something, but you can, you can get the Liverpool... Tunes, yeah. yeah, Aston Villa fans sing the Si Senor song yeah. that we sang yeah. for Bobby Firmino. Yeah. There was a fantastic documentary on LFC TV about the songs of the cop. And I think it was an hour long. And I'd forgotten quite how many songs we'd had over the years. Oh, yeah. and it wasn't just, you know, six, eight, ten, twenty. It was like 
100, 150, 200 songs because a lot, a lot of the players have their own song. Yeah, so right. we talked about Bobby Graham, uh, Viva Bobby Viva Graham, Bobby Graham, Viva yeah. Bobby Graham. Yeah. Well, Viva Bobby Joe. Uh, is it? Um, Every time I put a picture of Bobby online, I get that. Somebody writes back to me saying, Viva Bobby Graham. Yeah. Um, we talked about Bobby Graham before and the injury against Chelsea. And of course, do you know who came on as his substitute in that match? Who? Steve Highway. There you go. What a legend he became. I think that's why Bobby Graham never got his place back. It probably was, yeah. It's just what happens. It's fine mm. margins. Yeah. Fine margins, you know. Get injured, like I tell you about the, the American tour I missed. And yeah. the, the, you know, there's all sorts of fine margins. I remember going to um, Leicester City, his 12th man, and we stopped for a meal at the Lim Hotel, and Roger had food poisoning. Well, it seemed like he, had food, he was really yeah. Ill yeah. and bad. And I was ready to play, I was on. Yeah. And then by the time we got to Philbert Street, he'd recovered. <laughs> now, who knows if I'd have got in that yeah. day? I could have scored a couple of goals. Yeah, yeah. But, but I've read the book, so I know you, you say in the book you were a, an attacking midfield player rather than an out-and-out striker. That's right. But, but you did score, you scored a heck of a lot of goals I from did. midfield. And the C team, the B team, the A team, and then yeah. the reserves. I think I scored at hundred and over three seasons at 108, 110 games in a yeah. Central League team. Scored 36 goals from midfield, which wasn't bad, you know. Midfield is brilliant. put it this way, it was more than any other player, including Phil Chisnell, yeah, yeah. including Gordon, including Bobby. Including Alf Arrowsmith as well. Including, was, yeah. I think Alf scored probably a couple. One season he scored, he's got a couple more than me. The yeah. season before he broke in, yeah. he, had, he scored 32 goals or something. Yeah. But I mean, he was, an, he was a phenomenon, Alfie Arrowsmith. Yeah. He didn't look like a, go, a player. We always did make out of him when he first came. He was like a, a country hick. Yeah. Lancashire accent, you know, and yeah. his feet seemed all over the place. Yeah. But, you know, Shankly saw something in him yeah. and he was right and he started to score goals for fun. He had a golden patch didn't he 64 when they won the league the first time won the league under Shankly yeah and he was it Hunt who was injured what yes a Roger Hunt I think was injured and he came in um, and he was such a lovely lad Alfie apart from being a great player another player that you mentioned in your book another fellow Scotsman was Ian Ross yes if you ask any Liverpool supporter of that time what was his finest moment? We'd all agree it was the Bayern Munich match, wasn't it? Yes. So do you yes. want to tell us about that? Because this is a great Bill Shankly story as well. Yeah. So we won 3 0 at Anfield, didn't we? Yeah, against they, Bayern Munich. That's right. But when they were over there, he was designated to Mark Beckenbauer. And uh, Shankly said, if he goes to the toilet, you go with him, son. You know, yeah. in other words, you, that's your job. Yeah. Blank him out, you know. Yeah. He did what he, he did, everything right, you know. Comes yeah. in a, he scored. He scored a great goal, um, yeah. Ian, you know. And he comes in at half time. He's, he's, he's really buzzing, you know. And then you go out the second half and Beckenbauer scores. He comes in at full time and he's expecting to be praised. And Shankly said, he said, you left your man. He said, and you let your man score a goal, son. So I don't know what you're smiling about. <laughs> <laughs> I think also he, he hit the bar or something. In your book, Shankly says, you should have scored two. That's what he said. And yeah, you lost your man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Don't, be, don't be cocky, son. You should have scored two. And you left your man. <laughs> Oh, he was brilliant, you know. He did it all for effect. Uh, he's a fabulous. We all knew. We all knew when he was joking. You know, we did. We really did know when he was joking. He had a great sense of humour, Shankly. The thing about Shankly is that all the past players who played under him really, obviously, love him. Yeah. Even now, and even players he sold, like yourself, yeah. or he players Bill he Thompson, dropped. People like that played towards the end of yeah. his with him when he was in his second team. You know, Keegan as well. I mean, I went to Rogers. I was very proud to have been asked to speak at Roger's funeral. Not at his funeral, but at the wake. Yeah. Uh, his funeral, of course, was in the cathedral. Yeah. And we went back to Anfield. I'm sat at the table with Kevin Keegan, Johnny Aldridge, Gordon Wallace, Roy Evans, and a couple of others. 
And Keegan, Kevin Keegan had spoken at Cathedral, you know, and so I was sitting there, and it was, Bill Bagley was on his feet, and I see him looking over, and he starts walking towards me and Gordon. And I, Gordon said to me, he's not going to ask us to speak, is he? I said, looks like it. And he came over and he said, gentlemen, he said, uh, would you like to say a few words about Roger, you know, because you, you're two of the few people that were there when he was, when he was in his beginning of his career, you know. We hadn't prepared nothing. And we told the story about when we played uh, against Tommy Lawrence and Roger at Lee Golf Club. Tommy tried to manufacture his handicap a bit, you know, so they could beat us. But in the end, we beat them. Me and Gordon took a pound off them. And we're chatting away about Shankly in the old days, and I was a bit of a laughing. And after half an hour or so, Roger says, Oh, well, boys, time to go, I think. You know, I've got to get back. And, oh, nice to see you, Roger. Nice to see you. Shook hands with him and Tommy. Oh, wonderful talking together, boys. And as as we began to walk out, I said to Roger, I said, uh, Hey, Roger, have you not forgot something? What? Where's the pound? Where's the pound? And he, he said, Oh, I said, Scotsman. Scotsman, he said. God, God, he said. There's your pound. He, he flicked a pound. I caught it. And I said, not every day you get a pound off a World Cup winner, Roger. <laughs> <laughs> and I've still got that pound in my trophy cabinet. Gordon told the story about Reykjavik. When he scored, he said, yeah. Roger's got to see. Passed the ball through and I miskicked. And Roger said, you miskicked. He said, the ball went in the opposite corner, but you intended it. You know. So it was nice to be able to do that and pay tribute to him. Yeah, I mean, Roger, um, you mentioned in, in your book about Roger had a fantastic physique. Yeah. And he was he was built like a bull, wasn't he? Yeah. A big powerful thighs, big broad chest, could run all day, digging either foot and he had a hell prolific, of a powerful prolific. shot. And he didn't have much back lift. He just no. he would turn, swing, swivel yeah. and hit it. Yeah. And away it went into the net, you know, he just had an eye for a goal. Maybe your Johnny Aldridge was a bit like that. Rush obviously. Not many in Roger's class. Yeah, I always remember because of course he was the centre forward when I first watched Liverpool. Where, albeit wearing the number eight shirt, he would score some amazing goals, but then he'd miss the easiest chances, and the cop would all go, oh, Roger! Yeah. But then he'd make amends, because he'd have the ball at an impossible angle, and a ball would go whistling past the goalkeeper's ear, and yeah. flying into the top corner. I think, how did he manage to score that, but miss all these other easy chances? I know, I know. It was our unfortunate situation that they had people like him yeah. playing in the first team, World Cup winner, you know, Ian St John, one of the greatest players ever played for the club, you know, and Peter Thompson, if there's any better wingers than him ever played for the club, I'd like to see them. And Cali, 847 appearances, you know, I'll never be beaten. It's funny, isn't it? Because they talk about our two wingers, Cali on the right and Peter Thompson on the left. And I've heard people say, if we were winning the game and we wanted to sort of see off time, we give the ball to Peter Thompson because he'd yeah. go up and down the left wing, he'd beat the fullback <laughs> for fun three or four times and come back again for more. Shankly used to say, they pay money to watch him in the kicking. <laughs> yeah, but he, he was great, wasn't he? Because he had fantastic juggling, balls, juggling, juggling ball, skills, yeah. 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 And then he said, if we needed a goal, because we were losing, we'd give the ball to Cali, because he just bit the ball past the full-back and then knock it Like in the in. cup final, when he went past the full-back, chipped in, he and scored a head eye. Yeah. yeah. Now, the, the, Cali was great because he went outside the full-back. Yeah. And it didn't cut in much. It yeah. always seemed to go. And he must have had pace, because he used to get there and cross it. Yeah. Yeah, he was a brilliant player, Ian. Brilliant player. So he started off as a really nippy winger, very direct, get to the goal line and pull the ball back, let Hunt and St John do the work. And then, of course, he, then as he slowed a bit yeah. and matured, he then Pulled moved to midfield, midfield and became a tremendous central midfield player. His longevity is fantastic, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know? He played in the, to go right through to 77, actually. He was in the squad then, wasn't he? 
Yeah. yeah. You say in the book, he's the only man to play in Rome in 77 against Munchen Gladbach, who played in the very first yeah, European type. Incredible. Amazing, yeah. 14 Amazing. years. And after that match, he got an England cap. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. He should have had more. Yeah. He wait, he'd waited uh, since 1966 for another cap, and he got it in 1977. So, George, under Shankly, uh, famously, as you said, you were the 12th best player in the world because the best 11 players in the world were in the team. And this this team didn't really change, did it? Lawrence, Lawland, Byrne, Mullinier, Stevenson, Callaghan, Hunt, St. John, Smith and Thompson. Shankly would say to the press, oh, it's the same team as last season, yeah. which is why you never got a chance to play in it because the same 11, luckily enough, were, were fit enough to play in every match, week in, week out. Now, the question I've got for you is, did the playing style change from match to match? Did Shankly vary his tactics or, or did, did Paisley, whatever, vary the tactics? How was the team set up well, for different it, matches? When, he, when Shankly inherited the squad when he first arrived, they were, they were a bit of a hodgepodge squad. Second division, you know, and he had to move people on. He moved a lot of good players on because it didn't fit what he wanted and what Bob Paisley wanted. And he had to bring new players in who did fit into that scheme. And, you know, Tommy Lawrence broke into the team you know, about 63, mm-hmm. I think, when he, he debuted at West Brom. And then he went up to um, Scotland and he got Ronnie Yates and he got Ian St John and he knew those two guys were going to be central to whatever Liverpool wanted to achieve. And then he got Gordon Milne, who he called a fetching carrier of messages. Okay. He used to get the ball and pass it on. Uh, a bit like uh, a bit like Endo today. Yeah. He then got Tomo, Peter Thompson from Preston, who was yeah. fantastic. And Callaghan came through on the right. And they had Roger Hunt, who was already there and developed. And he got Ian John, who I said, came in. He had this method of like, and it's not a religious term in this sense, crucifix method. Yes. He'd have Tommy Lawrence in goals, sweep a goalkeeper. He would come off his line, one of the first goalkeepers ever to do that. Yeah. He'd have Ronnie Yates in the middle, like Virgil van Dijk is mm-hmm. now. Similar physique, central defence. He then went forward to St. John mm-hmm. in the front, a bit like Firmino, yeah. that type of player. Yeah. He had Roger Hunt. Um, who, a bit like uh, uh, Jota today or Mane before, you know, striker. You had Callaghan on the right, cr- providing the crosses, and you had Thompson on the left. And the full-backs were, were, didn't overlap much. No. They were, they were full-backs. But what Shankly's tactics basically were very simple, and it's been like Klopp does now, very similar. I, I watch Klopp's team now, and I look back to the 60s, and it's very similar. For example, Shankly's ethos was... The ball doesn't get tired. Yeah. Move the ball on to the next man in a red jersey. Yeah. Don't give the ball away. Yeah. And players in the future like Phil Thompson adhere to that. I used to watch Phil Thompson play. And all he'd do is get the simple ball, stop it, pass it, stop it, pass it. And Shankly used to say to us, let the prima donnas, let the Bobby Dazzlers dazzle in the box. The rest of you, your job is to fetch, carry, move, fetch, carry, move. Okay. Don't give it away. And if you give it away, get it back. That's the high press. No. So Shankly had the high press then. No player would give the ball away and not fight to get it back. That was our key, key thing to yeah. do. Yeah. So, you know, he had a team then. The only change now is that the full-backs overlap. So the full-backs become like Thompson and Callaghan, mm. crossing the ball, making the goals. Yeah. And the back four. See, we used to play 2-3-5. You'd never be able to do that now. Now they play 4-2-4 or 4-3-3 mm. or whatever the system they have, you know. So the tactics never changed. So if anybody said the tactics changed day to day, week to week, no. 
He had a specific way of playing. And for example, Tommy Smith would give the ball to Gordon Milne. He'd get it back and he'd look up and he'd ping it over to Thompson, a bit like Alexander-Arnold does. Yeah. And then Tommy would build it up again. He'd start again and he'd push it back to Jerry Byrne, he'd push it into uh, midfield, Billy Stevenson. And Billy would hit a long pass out to the right wing because mm -hmm. he had a very cultured left foot. Yeah. And they were, every player played their, played their part. And I think it's a bit like Klopp now. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, if you've got the man at the top relating to the fans, relating to the players who love him mm -hmm. and play for him, you've got a winning formula. Mm -hmm. So the winning formula Klopp is using today is very similar, in my view, to the mm -hmm. winning formula that Shankly created. It's very similar. Yeah. When I first saw Liverpool play, admittedly I only went to the home games then, but my memory is very strong of, as the game went on, we got more and more dominant. And in the end, the opposition was just basically stuck in their own penalty area yeah. and were just hoofing the ball into the stands to relieve the pressure. And it just became relentless. And the number of games we won in the last 10 minutes, just like under Klopp these days, yeah. was incredible. When we won the league in 1973, I remember they had a run of games where we scored last-minute winners. Yeah. I mean, Shankly used to say things like, I went to conquer the bloody world, just like Napoleon. Yeah. You know, and he'd say things like, outrageous things like, you know, we keep at them, keep at, keep at them till they all give in. They'll all give in. Yeah. And he said to me, like I told you earlier, you're lucky to be here. They'll all come here to be beaten. Yeah. You know, he had that positive attitude yeah. which instilled itself onto the players. Yeah. You couldn't help but be inspired by him. No. I mean, even little things. I remember when we played a five-a-side at Melwood once and we had cricket stumps for goals and it was a muddy day. And Shankly chipped his ball over my head and I ran back and ran back and ran back. And I got to it just, just as I got to the line and I stretched out and I slid in and I tipped it round the post. I'm lying there. The next minute I get this shadow coming above my head and I hand him my hair. I'd hear then. <laughs> See what happens when you don't give up. See what happens, son, when you yeah. don't give up. And I, that resonates with you yeah. in life. And even when I was ill in later life, you know, recently, I mean, you know, you never give up. Because Shankly would never give up and he wouldn't accept you giving up. Yeah. You had to give 100%, leave it all out there on the pitch. I, I love the, in your book the way you relate your first uh, interview for a non-football job. I think it was at the Adelphi Hotel or wherever it was. Adelphi Hotel, yeah. And I think you saw a lot of guys older than you and look more experienced than you. And you, you took fright and walked out. And then you, the words of Shankly resonated with you. Yeah, well, you I thought, had no experience at all. I, I was a footballer playing for Tranmere. But you turned around and you went back into that hotel yeah, with the words I, of Shankly. I saw, I saw these lads with collars and ties on and, yeah. you know, milling around the, the central area. They're all going for this job for two jobs for Nestle. Yeah. Nestle, a big food company, massive yeah. company. Yeah. And my idea was that to create something in future life for my family. I was coming towards the end of my football career playing at Tranmere, yeah. playing regularly in the first team. But yeah. I took a decision that I would maybe try and yeah. find. So, yeah, I turned away and walked down past the grapes uh, towards Lamsey Station. And something in my mind said, Shanks would never give up, would he? Get back, get back. And I went back and I got the job yeah. against 80 people. Yeah. You know, so and one of the reasons I got the job, I had to obviously perform well in the interview, but when they asked if I'd got a reference, and I showed him the, the reference I got from Bill Shankly, and he, I remember the manager said to me, Alan Connebeer, his name was, he said, is that a forgery? <laughs> that was his exact words. And yeah. I said, no, it's original. That's, he said, I didn't think Shankly signed his, letter, his, his name with a W. Is his name Bill. I said, that's William, William Shankly. Yeah. It's an official document, so he signed it W. Yeah. Shankly, yeah. and he signed it in red ink. So, you know, I convinced the lad that, uh, you know, the character at least was okay if Shankly said it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. And uh, also, he got you your contract 
at Tramway, didn't he? He did, because again, I was playing in South Africa, very successful in South Africa. I was one of the top scorers in the country. We won the league championship of South Africa in 1967 to get 20,000 people watching us every week and travel to Durban, Johannesburg, Cape Town. And a few years later, Ian St. John and Roger Hunt went out there to Cape Town, played some games over there. It was a very competitive league. So, you know, I had a good two years there. And then towards the end of that two years, um, a lad broke into our apartment and I got stabbed. Not seriously, but it could have been a lot worse than it, than it was. Um, but then I got a letter from the boss. And the letter's in the book. You know, the letter says, it's very interesting because he tells me Gordon Wallace is at crew and doing well. And the last paragraph of the letter says, we're still winning the five-a-side, son, in the car park. How could we lose? We've got five referees in the team. <laughs> and that was really good. So I thought, well, I'll go and see him. Yeah. So we flew back to the UK and I had nothing to come back to. If I hadn't got a football club, I would have had to get a job in a factory or something. Yeah. Or I would have had to go back to South Africa because they retained my registration, yeah. as they did in those days. And they didn't want to lose me because I was an asset. Yeah. And so they'd agreed only for me to play in the United Kingdom. They wouldn't let me play anywhere else in the world. I went up to Anfield. I saw Roger Hunt in the car park, I remember. He was surprised to see me. I said, well, I've come to see the boss, Roger. Oh, he said he'd be pleased to see you. He's in his office. So he was driving off in his car after I spoke to him. And I went through into the, t into the main entrance walked down, turned right there, Shankly's office at the end, and a bit trepidation, I walked towards the office and it opened. And out comes Shankly with Dave Horridge and some other reporter from Daily Mail, Daily Mirror, and he's talking away, you can see his head going, you know, giving the usual Shankly stuff. And they got dismissed. And he walks towards me and he goes, oh, look where the wind blew. And he said, you haven't grown, son, you haven't grown. <laughs> that was his exact words. Come in, come in. So when I went to his office, and was sitting there and I, he said, where do you want to play? And a part of me thought, I wouldn't mind coming back here, but that, that had gone, you know. I said, anywhere, boss, anywhere. I'd just be happy to get my boots on and give it a go. Right, what about Tramia Rovers? Doing well in the third division. Top of the league nearly, top six. I'll phone David Russell. He gets on the phone to David Russell. And he was doing well over there. Uh, this is before Johnny King. Yeah. Shankly starts on him. Hello, David. Uh, Bill Shankly here. I've got a boy just come back from Africa. Oh, no, 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 no. He'll score 20 goals a season for you. Best player ever to play in my reserve team. Dave must have said, I can't afford to, Bill. You can't afford not to. <laughs> Next minute, he says to me, puts the phone down after a few more words. He says, you've got your boots, son. I said, aye, boss, yeah, I'll get him. Take him to Prenton Park. He said, I've got your one month's trial. First team wages. The rest's up to you. I know you won't let me down. That was it. Walked out of his office, go over to Prenton Park, and Monday, I think it was, I walks in, Dave Russell looks at me. I'm not very big, as you can see, five foot six. I hope you can play, he said. Just committed my board of directors to give him a month's trial on Shankly's word. Anyway, to be fair to him, on the Wednesday, there was a match against Derby County. And they had Hector Hinton O'Hare, Gemmell, wow. Mackay, McFarland. Wow. The following season, 1971, they won the league, won the first division. Yeah. And they came to Prenton Park to play a testimonial game for Alan King, who was a, a well-known midfield player. Yeah. 14,000 there. He didn't know who I was. I'm in the first team. I go out onto the pitch, and as I'm walking down, the lights are on, and I'm thinking of one chance here, one chance. I knew it could last 45 minutes because it was out of season. Yes. Because like Australia, it's the opposite. Yeah. So I get on there, and as I'm walking down, Brian Clough's in the tunnel, and he, uh, he puts his hand out. I believe it's your debut, young man. I said, yeah, it is Mr. Clough, yeah. Good luck. And as I walked down, he cursed. I won't, I won't repeat the word on the podcast. But he said, you'll need it. But it was the word in between, you'll <laughs> need it. And that's the last time I've seen Mr. Clough, you know. But I went down to the pitch. 
And uh, within about 15 minutes, I nutmeg Dave Mackay, sprayed the ball about like as if I was born to the job. Five hours first half, nil nil half time. Norman Wilson, the club secretary, came into the dressing room with a contract, two year contract, first team wages, on 45 minute performance, thanks to Bill Shankly. That enabled me and Carol, my wife, to get a house on the Wirral. My boy, my youngest son, was four months old at the time. He was born in South Africa. And that was us at Tranmere. I played there for two years, played about 50 games in the first team, yeah. and then decided to do something else. And Stan Storton, who was the fullback at Tranmere, went to manage Ellesmere Port Town. And he said to me, if you come to the Northern Premier League for me, I'll give you £20 a week in the season, 10 in the summer. And it was, an, it was a good standard. It was like the conference is now. We played against Wigan Athletic and Boston United and all that. And I had three great years at Ellesmere Port. And it was the start of my sales career with a company car mm. and a job and a salary. And I'll never look back from there. Fabulous. Again, thanks to Bill Shankly. Thanks to Bill Shankly. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. I'd like to talk to you about the dressing rooms at Anfield. There's a, one of the stories I've heard about Shankly, and you were there at this time, so you can tell me this is true or not, was that Bill Shankly, when he first went to Anfield, he didn't like the fact that the first team dressing room, he turned left out the door. He felt it was unlucky, he wanted to turn right. So the story I've heard is that he switched the dressing rooms around so the Liverpool players got changed in what had been the older way dressing room because he turned right out the door. Now, um, is that a myth or did it actually happen? No, you were there not, at the time. That's not true. No, that's not true. Okay. All the time I was at Anfield, there were two dressing rooms, obviously. Mm. And you come down the players' entrance, mm-hmm. you go down and you turn left. And, that, and then the first room in the left was the dress. It was a big dressing room with a big bath, big communal bath. Yeah. No showers in those days. Yeah. Um, and a treatment table. Yeah. The other dressing room was half the size. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it was by the steps going down. Yeah. Now, now, of course, you've got this is Anfield, this flat. In those days, you, you walked along and there were steps. Steps down, yeah. Going down yeah. and then up. Yeah. And the away dressing room was next to that tunnel and it was right. small. Yeah. Okay. It was small. Now, that's the only two dressing rooms I can ever remember. Yeah. And I left in 1965. Okay. So if anything happened after 65, I don't know. Looks like you've busted a myth there, George, but I'm glad you have because uh, uh, some of these, it's great to have the stories, but it's nice to, nice to know which ones are true and which ones aren't no, true. No, he never, he never, he never changed the dress. Yeah. But I mean, obviously, there's no way we would have used the away team dressing room. It was much smaller. And, and the, other, the other story is that um, as you came out of the two dressing rooms to, to go out onto the pitch, the, the doors faced each other. Is that right? No. Okay. No, the, the the main dressing room just faced straight into the passage. Yeah. And then you turn right and about 20 yards down. Yeah. And then the away dressing room faced the entrance to the pitch. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Another myth busted. But yeah, thank you. That's, uh, that's, a bit, that's, that's how it was when I was there. Yeah, it's fine. We talked about the 65 FA Cup final and the homecoming and stuff. The Cup final was the Saturday, May the 1st. The homecoming was on the Sunday the 2nd. On the 3rd of May, one of your mates got married. Uh, Chris Lawler. And then on the following night, the 4th of May, incredibly, we played the the European Cup semi-final. That's right, and he scored and got disallowed. Against the world champions at Anfield. My dad went to that game. Yeah, against, was, uh, the gates were closed an hour before kickoff. Uh, against the team that we, we call Inter Milan, but Inter, yeah. Inter Nazionale. Inter Nazionale Milan, yeah. But my dad said it was the most passionate atmosphere he'd ever been yeah. at at Anfield. The only one I could compare with that in those days was St Etienne. 
Well, I wouldn't know about that, George. Would I have got locked out of that one? Yeah, well, exactly. Well, the same. The Inter Milan game, the gates were closed an hour before kickoff. Yeah, it was incredible. And Shankly pulled a masterstroke, didn't he, before the kickoff? What did he do? Well, he got Gordon Milne and, uh, and Jerry Byrne to, to bring out the FA Cup and walk around with the FA Cup. It was a masterstroke indeed. Because Gordon, of course, got injured, couldn't play, and Jeff Strong played in the final. But yeah, it was a masterstroke. And we battered them, you know. And uh, Shankly really admired their manager. It was Herrera. Helena Herrera, yeah. yeah. And they had a guy called Suarez playing for them as well. Luis Suarez, funny enough, the same yeah. name as our player. And Mazzola, Mazzola. There were some fantastic players, you know. But Liverpool really did overrun them. And Chris just scored a great goal. And it was disallowed, I think, for offside. You yeah. know. And Cali scored a great goal because it was a free kick. And it was a well-worked free kick in yeah. training. It worked yeah. and he slotted it in the far corner. Uh, yeah, it was so sad that we got robbed in the return match because... There was definitely hanky-panky going on there, a bit of uh, skullduggery. I mean, I remember Shankly, he was in the hotel and he was he was up shouting at the light, I know you're there, I know you can hear me. <laughs> oh, he thought, the, he thought the room was bugged. He thought the room was bugged, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was, I mean, that game, Tommy Lawrence, in the old days, you, you bounced the ball and, you know, you do it again now, can't you? Yeah. There was a while a rule came in when you couldn't get more than three steps a goalkeeper. But Tommy was bouncing the ball and one of the Inter Milan players, Corso, I think, he'd gone behind him out to play, he came back on the pitch, up, sneaked up behind Tommy, and that's Tommy bounced, he flicked it out of his, and he scored, and the goal stood. Yeah. And the other one was uh, Fichetti, the fullback, tall lad, the referee awarded an indirect free kick, indicated indirect free kick, Liverpool players let the ball straight in the top corner of the net and gave the goal. And there's rumours that brown envelopes were passed around and that, but you can't prove it. But it was a very, um, I think, I feel we were robbed really, but you know, but we should have won 4-1 at Anfield anyway. Whether the goal was offside or not, I don't know. You know we didn't have any VR there. So. <laughs> no. Did you feel at the time that the refereeing in Milan was suspect? Well, that was a genuine feeling amongst the, amongst our players, I think, yeah. and some of the media as well. And as time's gone on, it's got worse, I think. I think your time lends, you know, and most people would say, oh, we were robbed, you know, we got cheated. You can't prove it, so it's difficult to say that. Allegedly. Yeah, I mean, I remember, I think it was Ian St. John said, we, we could just couldn't get going because every time... The ball went into their half. The referee yeah. blew up and gave them a free kick. Yeah, yeah, he stopped starting all that, wasting time. And... Either offside or he, he, if we challenge for the ball, he gave a free kick for them against us. And... Well, they had the dark arts, the Italian teams, didn't they? They were mm. well known for that, the Catanaccio defence. Yeah. You know, they waste time, they, they, they roll over 10 times when they hit the ground, you know, all those little things, you know. But they, we lost the game, so at the end of the day, you can't change it, so there's not much point. And we went on to win six more anyway, so yeah. it could have been more. Yeah, I remember that we went to Athens and I thought we played better in Athens than we did in Istanbul. I went to Athens. I did actually shell out the money to, to fly out there and I totally agree with you. I remember they announced the man of the match. Inzaghi got the man of the match award and I thought, I'm sitting there going, well, sorry, standing there at my seat thinking, how come he's won man of the match? He's done nothing apart from score the two goals that's won them the European Cup. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, funny enough, we were at that match and our plane never came back. We had a chartered plane. Yeah. We're not on a chartered plane and they didn't pay the fuel or something. So me and my son get back to the airport and the Milan guy, his fans are all celebrating the other side. Yeah. We could hear them all singing. Yeah. We were there, we didn't have a plane. We're ready to sleep on the tarmac. And uh, my son my son works for BAE Systems. At that time, he was uh, controlling the Eurofighter and he had contacts in the airline industry. For some reason, I don't know how he did it, he managed to get us on a plane. And we, but the professional, our golf club, he was there. It took three days to get home. Wow. Yeah, he he so that was our memories of Athens as compared to Istanbul. One very nice, one very good memories. We had a similar experience in that 
when we got to the airport, there was no flights shown on the departures board. Nobody knew when the flights were going, what, what was happening yeah, to our flights. So we ended up sleeping on the floor, but not in the airport terminal. They moved us out to a shed. Yeah. Because the airport terminal was given to the Milan fans. That's right, yeah, that's right. So we had to go to we got to this other shed, you know, maybe half a mile away. They bust us out there. But we couldn't, we couldn't even sleep in the airport. We it's sleep in ideal. a shed. Not ideal, is it? And then well, our flight should have flown out like two in the morning. It was only about some like eight o'clock the next morning we found out any information about what time our flight was going to be. Yeah, it was no, crazy, it wasn't good. It wasn't crazy. And my understanding is that as long as you're booked on a flight once he turned up, he's put in the first flight, going back to Liverpool. Yeah. Now, one of the players that you mentioned in your book, George, is a player that isn't particularly well known as a Liverpool player. A guy called Steve Peplow. Obviously, he had quite a good career at Tranmere, didn't he? Like yeah. you did, in fact. I think he only played three first-team matches. He did. He did. In fact, Steve Peplow used to live in Anfield when we were in Digs yeah. in Anfield, two five Anfield Road. Steve was one of the young English lads who lived in the area just down the road. And we used to play five-a-sides, or more than five-a-sides, against the English lads, the Scottish lads, in Stanley Park. And we, we had a couple of jackets down. Shankly would have been incandescent if he knew we were doing it. And Steve was one of the lads, and you could see he had talent then as a kid. He later, of course, came to Anfield, but after I left. So Steve wasn't there when I was there. He, yeah. Just a year after I left, I think, a couple of years after. Anyway, he was a really, really good player, Steve, and a lovely fella. I got to know him later. And he was just a nice player. Another player, like me in a way, they probably didn't get the rewards that his effort put in in the first team. Yeah. And then he went to Tranmere and played 200-odd games for Tranmere. Yeah. Very prolific goal scorer. Yeah. When he left Liverpool, he went to Swindon Town, became quite a good player there. Went to Notts Forest, I think. Um, so he had a good career, Steve, you know, and sadly passed away a few years ago with a heart attack. I actually saw two of those games he played. <laughs> they were both historic matches, a bit like Gordon Wallace, yeah. two, two historic goals. So the first game I saw him play was in November 68, playing West Ham at home. Right. And why was that historic, do you remember? No, I don't remember. It was the first game on Match of the Day in colour. Oh, was it? Yeah, in colour. Uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, I remember the cop all singing, Tommy Smith in colour, huh? Tommy Smith <laughs> in colour. And uh, we beat West Ham 2-0. And so Stevie Peplow uh, played in that game. Well, I got a picture of Steve um, playing against West Ham, Bobby Moore, and his yeah. his wife actually loves that photograph. You know, it's Bobby Moore and uh, Martin Peters, I think, are on the photograph of Steve. The other game I remember Steve Peplow playing in uh, might have been his last game for the club, and it was a remarkable game in the uh, Intercity's first cup at home to Vitoria Setúbal of Portugal. We had lost the away tie one nil, and. In the first half, we conceded a penalty, which they scored. So we're now 2-0 uh, down. And then, early in the second half, we scored an own goal. Uh, so now we're 2-0 down at home and 3-0 down at aggregate. So Shankly takes off Peplo and Bobby Graham, brings on the cavalry, uh, Roger Hunt and Alan Evans. And after about an hour, we got a penalty, which Tommy Smith scored. And now it's game on and the cop um, was singing No Surrender. And a bit like the Barcelona game, you know, we thought we can get this. But we just couldn't score until about two minutes from time. Alan Evans scored. I think he scrambled one over the line. And then into 
the final minute of the game and Roger Hunt is an absolute screamer into the top corner of the goal. It turns out it was Roger's last of a goal for Liverpool and straight from the kickoff, they literally wellied the ball into the main stand and I think it landed somewhere behind the director's box. Then before we could take the throw in, the referee blew the final whistle. So we thought, well, that's, that's okay. Level on aggregate. It's going to go to extra time. But after a while, the victorious Echeval players were celebrating and they, they, left, the, they left the field. Uh, the Liverpool players sort of looked at each other and they left the field. And we all waited, thought, well, maybe there's going to be a little break before extra time is played. And there was an announcement on the tannoy to say that we'd lost because away goals now encountered double in the event of a tie. That was it. We were out. And I remember Bill Shankly was fuming and said, we lost uh, to an own goal, a penalty and the rules. <laughs> so obviously own goals and penalties and the rules don't count when it's Liverpool. But as bad as that was, it had to be better than the previous season when also in the uh, in the Intercity's first cup, we'd managed to lose 2-1 away to Athletic Bilbao. Then we beat them at home 2-1. And again, we were waiting for extra time when the referee called the players into the centre circle and we realised it was going to be decided on the toss of a coin. And we lost. So Ron Yates, who had previously won the toss of a coin against Cologne, now had the uh, misfortune to lose the toss of a coin as well. And it's very rare to lose the toss of a coin, isn't it? Um, we've actually managed to have two ties decided on the toss of a coin which is incredible really fancy winning a game on the toss of a coin it's not really right is it it's incredible I mean it's happened so rarely and yet it's happened to us twice Yeah. I don't know any other English club it's happened to once Yeah. but there was an international where it was it was actually the European uh, Nations Cup as it was then 1968 played in Italy England were knocked out by uh, Yugoslavia and then Yugoslavia played Italy and drew one all. And the ref tossed a coin and Italy won. Yeah, it's a crazy a way to win a game. Yeah. It must amazing. be a better way. Penalties is better. Yeah. The golden goal even. I know. totally agree. No matter, no matter how bad people think penalties are, trust me. It's, it's much still better. skill, isn't it? It's still skill. Absolutely. Goalkeeper skill, striker yeah. skill. At least you're in control of the situation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas on toss of a coin, it's like... And it's hand. exciting for the crowd as well. Yeah. We're, we're lucky, aren't we? Because Liverpool have got a fantastic good record. Yeah, record a good record of penalties. And on penalty shootouts. In fact, I can remember kind of almost like both the penalty shootouts we've lost because there's that, that few against the number that we've won. I think yeah. Wimbledon beat us once on penalties. That's right, yeah. Um, no, I won some big games on penalties, European Cups, you know, and, you know... I love to see Salah score that second one last week. When he missed the first one, he was so cool with the second one. Yeah. It takes a lot of courage to do that. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever take a penalty? Uh, oh yeah, I took quite a lot of penalties. Uh, what was your technique? I used to be, I used to pick the corner, yeah. not change it, and usually it was side of the foot, keep us left inside the post. And I didn't miss many. I think I missed one over the year. I didn't do that many. In Central League, I took a couple in Central League. Smithy used to bully me out of it. Port Elizabeth, I used to take them. Scored about six there. Scored a couple at Tranmere. No, scored one at Tranmere, that's right, yeah. Um, but I didn't take too many, but the ones I did take, I took quite well. I was quite confident. Tommy Smith, of course, 
was a regular penalty taker at Liverpool, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, at one point. Ronnie Moran was a penalty taker as well. Ronnie used to go for power. <laughs> my, <laughs> I'm afraid my first memory of a Ronnie Moran penalty was watching Grandstand. Liverpool were the league champions, were playing Swansea, Swansea at home, right. and were losing 2 0 to Swansea. And then he said, Liverpool got a penalty. I thought, it's back to 2-1 here, got to be. Yeah. And Ronnie Moran missed it. That's right. The keeper saved it, did he? Save it. I don't know. I was watching Grandstand. I think he battered it straight to goalkeeper. But, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then my first game at Anfield, 1965, we played Fulham. And we got a penalty. And Gordon Milne took it. And I think it was the only penalty he ever took. Yeah. Well, my God, no wonder, because he nearly hit the corner flag with it. I still think... It's probably the worst penalty I've ever seen taken by a Liverpool player. Yeah. Although the worst penalty ever has to be Mares playing for Man City when he actually, I think he skied the corner. Oh, way the over the roof. bar, yeah. <laughs> way over the bar, yeah, I know. That was awful, wasn't it? Yeah. I think Nasser are still tracking that one. <laughs> I yeah, think orbits yeah, the earth. Yeah, it was another one as well, wasn't it? One over the bar was um, Wembley. Or was it Kelleher was in goals, League Cup? I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Their goalkeeper put over the bar, didn't he? Yeah, Kepper. The two yeah. goalkeepers took it and he put over the bar, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No complaints. <laughs> well, it's a, as you say, it is a good test. It's a test of nerve and skill, isn't it? And uh, good combination of both, really. It is. Now, George, um, I, I know you've written this book, which I have thoroughly enjoyed reading. It's called The Lost Shankly Boy, George Scott's Anfield Journey. And... When I asked for this for Christmas, my family were amazed because they said, why are you getting a book about a, a football autobiography? You hate football autobiographies. Let me explain why I hate football autobiographies. They're all the same. I was born at a young age, right from I could walk, I could kick a ball. I got on the school team when I was six and they were all 11. I played for the pound team, the county team. A scout found me and I got signed. Yeah. Now, although a lot of that beginning bit was your story? It completely changed yeah. once you signed for Liverpool because you didn't ever got you never got in the first team. So your book is not about all the matches that you played in. It's all about the Shankly experience. It's about the the wonderful rise of the club and how you saw an insider's view of it without being directly involved or directly playing in the matches anyway. And also. It's a fantastic love story. There's a love story about Liverpool Football Club, but also your wife and your family, which is, which is really shines through. Yeah. It really gives a rounded picture of his man. And also, of course, your business career, which I, I thought was fascinating. And again, how you applied in your business career the principles yes. that Shankly instilled in you and the advice that you gave you. So I'm really pleased about that. Shankly used to say these things to us, which have always stayed with me. Natural enthusiasm, the greatest thing in the world, son. Without it, you are nothing. Yeah. And he also used to say, nothing happens unless you make it happen. Yeah. And those two phrases are the phrases that I've built my life on, really. Yeah, yeah. We now reached the end of the episode, but George and I continued to talk, and George explained to me how and why he came to write his book, The Lost Shankly Boy. And we also talked further about Bill Shankly, about how he continued the search for success after George left the club, and the similarities between Bill and Jurgen Klopp. We also went on to talk about George's family, of which he's very proud. So this is all included as an added bonus at the end of this episode. So if you want to hear it, 
keep listening once the music ends. Otherwise, uh, that's all we have time for today. So I'd like to thank our guest, George Scott, for his time and his stories. Please do read his book, The Lost Shankly Boy. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Brantones, that's spelled B-R-A-N-T-O-N-E-S, who are looking for building land across the northwest of England for social housing development. They're looking for sites between half an acre and two acres, and an acre is about the size of a football field. If you've enjoyed our podcast, do please like, share, uh, or rate our podcast episodes. It helps us to spread the word. And finally, if you would like to sponsor us, please contact us on our website, sweetsilversong.co.uk. And we have been asked, could we dedicate uh, episodes in memory of loved ones? And we're happy to do that for you. So until we meet again, goodbye and you'll never walk alone. So let me ask you, how did you come about uh, writing this book? Well, as you say, uh, Mark, the, the book to me, it's, it's, it's a, a legacy, if you like, really. I mean, I'm very, very thankful to Jeff Goulding because Jeff is a professional author. He's written six best-selling Liverpool books. Um, I won't name them all here, but the most recent one was called The Untouchables about the 1921-2021 team. Okay. Um, you know, so he's a marvellous writer. But I had written the book. I'd written the book over a number of years uh, in my mind and on paper um, because uh, people would ask me and told me I should write a book because I used to tell stories about the Shankly years and mm. people enjoyed what, the stories. But I didn't think I'd ever be able to write a book because I didn't have a publisher and it's difficult and you send a, you send a script in and it usually gets ditched. And Anyway, I come to meet Jeff and Jeff has to meet me at the Shankly Hotel and we were watching Liverpool play in Aston Villa when Liverpool scored a late winner. I think it was Roberts, Robertson scored one and Marnie scored a late winner. Oh, away. Away. Yes. Yeah. yes but we didn't yes. see the winner because we had to leave the hotel before the winner went in. Yeah, yeah. And that's another story I'll tell you maybe in a minute. Yeah, it was Marnie, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. But uh, so as we were talking, and one eye on the television, I was talking to Shank. He wanted to write an article on a website called This Is Anfield. He writes for them quite a lot. And as I spoke to him, he stopped me. He said, look, he said, this is not an article on This Is Anfield. This is a book. He said, yeah, I'd be honoured if you'd allow me to help you write it. And I was taken aback. I said, Jeff, yeah, well, I've got a publisher, he said. I work with Pitch Publishing. If I say it's a book, mm-hmm. if I say it's a book, it'll be, it's a book. So they'll take my word for it. So, you know, they introduced me to the people at Pitch Publishing, wonderful people, especially the designer. They designed the cover and the back page, you know. The rest. Um, and he asked me, have you got any photographs? I said, well, I've got loads of photographs. Can you send the photographs down to the publisher? And they'll sort it all out. Mm. So we spoke a bit more. And then what happened over the six months between meeting and publishing, we only met three times. Yeah. 
we did it all by, I sent what I had and he looked at it and he sent it back to me and I sent it back and he sent it back, changed a few things, left a few things. I always asked my permission whether you should do it. And at the end, we met again, and finally, before it went to print, had to be proofread for dates and all sorts, but before it was quite a big undertaking writing the book. So yeah. when, when, I, um, when we got that final meeting, he said, look, he said, let me explain um, how a book, it comes back to what you just said, how a book should come across. Most football books, as you described, go that way. What you need to do and what we need to do is write a book where the reader identifies with the character and the reader cares what happens to him or her. Yeah. And you start off by writing something and then you break off and later you go back to that period again and you build up. And that's, he, he mentioned a book called The Moon's a Balloon by David Niven. Yes. Which he said he'd read and it was, he wanted to shape it in that type of way. Yeah. So what we did was when I sent all this, well, everything went to him, he then come back to me with the final, with the chapters. And I would never have done that. I would have written the book. It was all written, but the way Jeff did it, he put it into the chapter headings. And, you know, it, it was just fantastic. So then it was proofread again and it was pretty, one of the best things, he said this, best things you'll ever feel, when you get a book you've written and it comes from the publisher and you open the box and there's that book there with your life in it, you won't believe it. Because he said, that's how I felt about all my books. They're like babies, he said, when you get, and he's right, I got the book. And Anyway, but we're going to have a big launch at the Shankly Hotel. Loads of people were coming, loads. It was all organised and then, Unfortunately, COVID struck ah. and we couldn't have it because of COVID. But then I had a double whammy because I had to go in for a five-way heart bypass wow. to Broad Green. Yeah. So that put a bit of a kibish on it. Um, so then we went on anyway and the book's been sold in every country in the world, obviously. It's only in English, but it's uh, only in hardback. It's not in paperback. It's in, uh, it's in Kindle as well. Um, but I look at it upon as a book which it's a fight for survival in the world of football, mm. professional football. Yeah. And it's a moral tale of not giving up, yeah. despite the odds. And in many cases, you only get one chance in life. And uh, here I am today now, 80 years of age next year, walking 10,000 steps a day, playing golf three times a week, being through bacterial double pneumonia, given eight hours to live, came back again. Um, I've had a lot of setbacks in working in life, but 90% of it's been brilliant. And 10% of it tends to have been things where you're faced like a lot of people with health issues. My wife's had health issues, she's came through and she's beautiful today. She's great, she's fit, she's healthy. I've got two sons, four grandsons, one Evertonian son, one Liverpool son, two Evertonian grandsons and two Liverpoolian. So my family is split down the middle and I have to try and be diplomatic most of the time. That's a typical... So it's been a great experience um, writing the book, yeah. and I've met so many people from it, yeah. Liverpool fans from all over the world, um, and it's been a joy and a pleasure to let people see how Liverpool, the modern Liverpool, was created yeah. out of Bill Shankly, Bob Paisley, and those other wonderful people. Because you were there right from the start. And I was you were there, there one month after Shankly went to Anfield. From you the very there. beginning, right yeah. until the 65 Cup final. Yeah. So there's a very important part of this story, really. I managed to capture, I think. Yeah. Um, and the rest has been captured by so many other people. And I always think of Liverpool a bit like Coronation Street. It goes on and on with new characters, but it's yeah. always successful. You have Dalglish, <laughs> and then you have Rush, yeah. and then you have Toshak, and you have, you know, you have all these wonderful players over the years that have come and gone. But the standard has always stayed up there. One thing occurred to me, which is that uh, Shankly, every year, every season, tried to find the next Roger Hunt, whatever. 
So he started off by signing Tony Haitley. And he, he, he scored quite a few goals, but yeah. he didn't quite fit into our way of playing. So he moved him on. Then he signed Alan Evans, the first uh, £100,000 teenager. Yeah. He was quite good for a couple of years, but then he didn't really last. Then he signed Jack Whittam. And Jack Whittam, I remember scoring a hat-trick against Derby County. Brilliant player. And I found it on YouTube, the match, the highlights. And he was one heck of a player. Big a bit like Roger Hunt, he was powerful, he was fast, he was well built, he had two good feet on him, uh, he, he and he scored this hat against Derby County, and I thought, what a player he was, but unfortunately he got injured, didn't he? Yes, and uh, he did. didn't make it. Then we signed Toshak. Yes. Then we signed Keegan. Yeah, then all changed. Then at last he's found the magic formula yeah. again, yeah. and then we're off yeah. again. But it was amazing that he, frankly, was relentless. He wasn't going to give up. He was going to find the next right. player. To take over from Roger. And then Bob was blessed because the first player he got hold of uh, was, uh, well, there was Ray Kennedy and it was um, Doug Leash. Yes. And that was the crown jewel for, yeah. for, for Bob to get Kenny. Yes. Because once Kenny came in there and then it all built from there, didn't it? Well, I'm sure you remember as well as I do, when Keegan announced, shocked us all by saying, I'm going to leave at the end of the season. I'm yeah. going to go abroad. Originally, I think Real Madrid were the favourites to sign him. And um, we thought, we're going to lose our star player. How can we replace Hamburg, Kevin Keegan? He, yeah. But he, he then decided, he, cho- he chose to go to Hamburg. And we thought, who's going to replace Kevin Keegan? Because he was... Right. Now, talking about natural enthusiasm, that was <clears throat> Kevin Keegan, yeah. wasn't it? Not the world's most skillful of players, he'll admit that. Not the most naturally gifted, but by God, 101% enthusiasm. And just built himself into a great footballer. But we thought, how are we going to replace him? But yeah, Bob, Bob had seen Kenny and wow. I mean, it's brilliant, isn't it? And it goes right through to Klopp today. Yeah. And I must admit, I've never met Jürgen Klopp. I'd love to meet him. Mm. I really would love to meet him. One day, perhaps I will. Um, I'm in touch with John Achtenberg, the um, goalie coach. The goal yeah. coach, yeah. In fact, a friend of mine, Carl Spiller, he sent a couple of copies of the book, one for John and one for Jürgen. And I wrote a letter to Jürgen. I put it in the book. This is only about a month ago. If that. I put a letter to him, only one page letter, just saying how much... He's like Shankly, and, you know. And now uh, John tells me he, he dropped me a mess- on message on Facebook saying he'd given the book and the letter to Jurgen's assistant. Yeah, I found out since her name's Pauline, but I didn't know at the time. And uh, she said that you'll get it. And I've had nothing back, so I don't know whether he has got it, whether he did get it, whether he's read it or not. I, you know, I suspect he'll read that in this close season when he's got yeah. a bit of time. Yeah, I would uh, imagine so. Yeah, yeah, because he, he loves Shankly. I know that. I've been in his office at Melwood, and he's got a big picture when he was there. He had a big picture of Shankly right above his desk. He's also got on his desk Shankly's typewriter, apparently. It was, well, up, it was in the club museum, and apparently it was taken to his office at, no, wait, uh, the, at the accident. The typewriter, which is an Olivetti type, that you type my reference yeah. on, was in the Shankly Hotel, because Chris Carline, who's Shankly's grandson, retained that with all the other memorabilia. And when he created the Shankly Hotel, he, he had all Bill's memorabilia in there. Okay. But in... It was, I think it was opened in 216-17. But the lad that opened it, who owned it, Lawrence Kenwright, he, Chris Carline, who's Bill's grandson, is a, a director of the Shankly Hotel. But over the last three or four years, the paths of... The, Lawrence wanted to do more a party hotel, yeah. hen parties and all the rest. Now, in that hotel, there's a story on every ceiling. And when I was asked to go in when it opened to do an interview with Chris, with his representative... Um, I told a few stories and three of my stories are on the roof of the hotels in the Shangri Hotel yeah. and they gave me a night in the hotel with my wife 
free in a meal, and we're lying in bed in one of the rooms, <laughs> and there's my story up there. One of one of the stories. I don't know yeah. what it was. So Chris is a wonderful. I saw him last week. Yeah. He's um, but he's now taken most of the memorabilia out. The hotels it's either been sold or it's changing around, and it's, he's going to open another place in Liverpool, which is dedicated like to Bill Shankly, yeah. a bit like Taggy's in Anfield Road. Where the fans can go yeah. before the game, and there'll be all, a lot of memorabilia. Now the typewriter has been in there ever since our hotel opened. Whether it's been moved from there now up to Anfield, I don't know. Well, but I think it's still there. There may be more than one in Furness, George. There may be more than one, yeah. The, the, but there was one definitely in the museum, the club museum, yeah. And it was in as a special display case. Well, I would imagine that would be the one that Shankly had. And apparently, Jurgen uh, asked, "Could he please?" Well, have I would it say that probably his, would be. It. But I've, I'll show you my reference. I've got it there. And it's um, one finger typing, yeah. you know. And it says, dear people. Yeah. It doesn't say, dear sir or madam, dear people. <laughs> the world. I mean, as you say, the Shankly Hotel's got all these uh, letters that Shankly wrote, and they're quoted on the ceilings and stuff. And, uh, and the Beatles telegram and all that, you know. And, and Shankly would personally reply to every letter that yeah. came in. And he, as you say, you sit there tapping away. That's the why I'd be very so. surprised if Jürgen doesn't reply to me because of the Shankly connection. So I'm hoping he's got the letter. I didn't put it in an envelope. I put it inside the book. Yeah. And I met Carl. Uh, Carl Spiller, he does, he does shirt signings and things. And the reason I met him was there's a lad from Ireland called Neil Bath Shazny. He goes under the name Cop Art and he's done draw paintings of all the players. Mm. In fact, I met him at the Hilton Hotel about six weeks ago f- for that reason, to meet him because he didn't want to meet they're a beautiful painting of me mm. when I was at Anfield. Lovely. Original painting. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's in my study. You want to see it? Um, I might be able to show you a copy. Anyway, um, you know, I met him and he, what he'd done, he'd done a painting of Trent, Alexander-Arnold and Robbo with the European Cup between them. And it's fantastic. Really fantastic. And he brought it over for Trent to sign. So we met in the Hilton Hotel the day before he was going up to Kirby. And Carl Spiller was with him. And he said to me, um, is Jürgen seen your book? I said, I don't think so. No, I've never said. Uh, he said, well, send me a couple of copies. I'm, I'm in touch with John Actenberg. He said, I'm sure John will. So I did. I sent him two copies with his letters, one for John and one for Jürgen. And John's come back and told me he's, he's passed it on to Jürgen's assistant. Um, so fingers crossed, it's a close season, he might read it and reply to me. You know, I don't mind if he doesn't read the book, but I wouldn't mind the reply from him to the letter because uh, he'd be interested to read what I said about, about Bill, you know.